0: you ready you ready all right hold on here we go what's up y'all you're listening to the my nation podcast i'm alex miller with the eagle joined always by travis brown the eagles texas a&m athletics writer travis it is frigid inside the Eagle newsroom. It's warm in here
1: though. Like usually in this room, it's so hot that you don't want to be in here with the lights and everything right now. It's kind of great. It it feels great. Um,
0: It's so cold though out there. Like my hands are freezing (laughs) trying to type the keys. Um, And you've been typing the keys because big news this week, Texas A&M athletic director Ross Bjork is leaving for Ohio state for the same position. Um, You know, that was a job that I think many around the college landscape knew was open. It's a pretty, it's a pretty good job. I'll say that. Um, Don't know if I was expecting Ross to be the guy that landed that job, but uh, he's, he's their
1: guy. He's going to lead the Buckeyes athletic department. If you, so today he had his introductory press conference. We're recording this on Wednesday and it, it, it makes sense when you look at everything that they were focusing on you know they they we'll, we'll probably get into some of the pluses and minuses and complaints and praises that Ross had while he was at AM. but i i think the reason why they targeted him is he's kind of always been on the leading edge of where college athlete athletics is going whether that be he was him and a and m were always on the the front edge of nil technology whether it be like the influencer platform and getting uh the athletes ways to connect with brands and people and and all that kind of stuff he was he was tied in with influencer and uh, jim cavall their ceo over there and helping them roll that out um and even when i talked to uh jim cavall over at influencer he he said one of the selling points one of the biggest things that Bjork and AM do is is be involved with some of that stuff so he was there and he's always been with had an eye ahead to what the college athletic landscape is going to be in 3 to 5 years whether that's uh, federal legislation on NIL whether that's court cases that set precedent on NIL and uh, then especially what the university's relationship is with athletes, whether that eventually comes down to a employee employer situation with a collective bargaining agreement and making it more like college sports. He's always had an eye on that and, and answered a lot of questions today about what he thought that is going to look like. And, and ultimately you could sum that all up into it doesn't really matter what it looks like, it just needs to get here so they can have a little bit of stability and understand what framework they're going to work under. So when you look at that, if if, if I was a college administrator right now looking at hiring an athletic director, I don't know if some of the things in the past really matter as much. Yeah, you got to have your finger on the pulse of the sports and make coaching hires, but those are done with committees and you bring in resources that are sports specific to those hires and facilities and and capital campaigns are are big too, but more and more of these dollars are going to be focused in on NIL. And more and more dollars are going to need to be focused in on alternate revenue streams uh, to maybe have to support contracts and paying athletes in some form or fashion in years to come. And he's kind of already on the leading edge of thinking through some of that stuff. So if you're going to be one of the biggest programs in the country, uh, one of the wealthiest, one of the biggest fan bases, one of the programs that has had the most success, especially on the football field. He, it certainly isn't a bad hire if that's the, uh, the qualifications that you're looking for.
0: Yeah, no, I think you nailed it, Travis. I think Ross is definitely qualified for that job. You know, he's been here for what? I'm trying to think back uh, uh, almost five years now. Yes. Uh, it was what, May 2019? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, A&M's gone through a slew of athletic directors since joining the SEC. Ross was probably i i'd have to check dates for sure but he was darn near close the longest tenured uh of that group and uh you know uh when you look back at the ross bjork era of sorts i guess you call it a and m what do you think are maybe some of the highs and the lows that people are really going to remember
1: yeah well i think with how the recency bias is now there's going to be a lot of people who would think about the quote unquote lows um, or some of the knocks that, that went against uh, Ross Bjork. I think probably the one that comes to mind that will probably be the biggest is the extension of the contract for Jimbo Fisher. Um, I I, I see both sides of that in the moment, because we were there covering the team in the moment Jimbo Fisher is just coming off of a great 2020 season where they just missed the playoffs, went to the orange bowl, won that game, the whole, we ain't done yet on the, pl- the, the platform of the orange bowl. Uh, and then the next season rolls around LSU is looking like they're going to need to hire a coach. And Scott Woodward's over there at LSU. If, if at the moment, everyone at that time thought Jimbo Fisher was it, you 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 want to protect the coach uh he was asked about this in the press conference and and so was um ted carter the new ohio state president as well as part of this uh search process saying what do you make of that contract because that was that was historic in this sport and he said he did his due diligence he had a lot of questions to ask about that some of that lies on the, the, the doorstep, the feet of the athletic director, but it's also an institutional problem uh, in that a there was other decision makers in a and who wanted to see that happen as well and that you learn from your mistakes, basically, and, and that this is kind of an, a fluid, ever-involving uh, industry and that um, there are mistakes to be made and mistakes to learn, learn from. I, I don't necessarily fault... Ross Bjork for extending the contract at that moment because and, and you can chime in on this as well because there was a lot of rumblings that Scott Woodward would poach Jimbo Fisher and if you put the the put yourself in that moment in time not there wasn't a whole lot of people who wanted Jimbo Fisher gone. No,
0: absolutely not. I mean, you nailed it earlier I mean, think about the season they were coming off of and then, you know they thought they a and thought they were going to have the next big thing in Haynes King, right? He yeah. gets hurt and then it's kind of like a okay, 21s kind of this mulligan season, A&M still beats Alabama, they get the number 1 recruiting class. It's like, hey, things went a little haywire, but if Aiden Floor, if Aiden Four is the floor, man, what's the ceiling? And then obviously 2022 proved otherwise and 2023 really nailed nailed in the coffin for for Jimbo's time at A&M. But yeah, Travis, I mean, in the moment, I mean, I don't think anybody would have shook their head and said, mm, I don't know about this. And I mean, hindsight's 2020, obviously. And like you said, I you know, Ross is the guy that delivers the contract because that's his job. But let's be honest, there's a ton of other people behind the scenes that are kind of calling, helping call the shots uh, per se.
1: Yeah, I, I think that in the next thing too, you'll look into the hiring. Well, the decision to fire Jimbo when he when he did, and, and that was a big decision. <laughs> it was a big decision. It's going to cost a lot of money, uh, and he's not going to be overseeing that money anymore. Um, and then the hiring of Mike Elko. You have the whole Mark Stoops saga in the middle of that, and and how I, 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 there there's a lot of rumors out there about how that went down. I'm not necessarily sure from the facts I have. I'm ready to lay that right onto Ross Bjork's feet, um, and and say that was his deal because there was a lot of personality and a lot of big opinions at play. And and like he said, again, in the press conference today that he, the uh, athletic director doesn't unilaterally make a decision like that. They go out and they hire a search firm. They have several candidates. They pick a winner and they present that candidate to uh, the president, the board of regents, and it's their decision to do that. And there's a lot of factors at play. Um, Could it be possible that the Mark Stoop things was squarely on him and he tried to – sure, but we haven't really had the reporting on that yet, uh, save for just rumors out there. So I think there's a lot of people who want to blame him for how that was run. It very well could have been uh, the case. And, and, you know, there was some hiccups along the way through how Jimbo Fisher was fired, how they hired the next head coach. But I don't necessarily think that that is – Ross Bjork's forte. I don't want to say he's bad at it, but his his forte is what we talked about earlier. He's going to look at the way that the university relates to and responds to college athletes and what that relationship looks like moving forward. And that's going to be just as huge as the hiring and firing of coaches uh, moving forward. So those are the two biggest things. I guess you could also say that there's probably some people in the fan base who were mad that on his watch, the sec, brought in, in Texas uh and that he but but again he too, showed up to
0: SEC media days which is not very common for an AD to do right
1: well, again if you want to take a a step back as a non-fan's perspective like what what is he going to do there um what what power does he have to prevent that from happening and ultimately it's going to be a good thing for the conference, and it's going to be a good thing for the AM because not that A and M as a brand would have any risk, probably, of being outside the the power two as it's beginning to form. But they strengthened the power two by bringing Texas and Oklahoma in, and they're on the right side of of they're they're in the greenest pastures of college football right now, and they only got greener by adding those. So. Hey, if it's any consolation, AM did get the first game at home. There you go. <laughs> I, so I don't, I don't. Which I don't, Ross won't be at anymore, I, right? I don't, I don't want to say that Ross Bjork's tenure at AM was was just a total failure because it wasn't. Uh, there was a lot of when you want to look at... Made some good coaching hires. He made some good ho- coaching hires. We have even touched on that. From with, the smaller sports, of with course. With Jim Schlossnagel uh, going to the College World Series in his first year at AM to Jared Chadwell might be his best hire of all of them with what he was able to do with the women's golf team in his first and and years. They look like they're going to keep that going, too. Right. Uh, Trisha Ford uh, at softball seems to be a decent hire. Uh, Jamie Morrison, I've, I've always forgot about that I mean he seems to be like that trajectory he was visible. kind of an out of the box hire too
0: like when when he hired him and I was reading his background I was like this guy did what and I mean look at what he did year one not to mention Joni Taylor's starting to get things going on on the women's basketball
1: side ain't him just beat Tennessee that was a big win at home so yeah so I don't want to make this come across as if Ross Bjork is the the greatest 80 out there uh, th- there were some shortcomings there were some things that didn't go well. Um, but I, the, the point of emphasis and probably and why Ohio State targeted him was the fact that he he does have experience, knowledge, and kind of a forte in uh, the future models of college athletics, and that's that's a savvy hire for a university uh, to go into that. It does so? Yeah, I don't want us to be overly gushing on on Ross because I think he did a good job here. I think. Uh, there was goods and pluses and minuses, but I, I, I do see why Ohio State targeted him. Uh, I will say this, too, about, about Ross. One
0: thing I appreciated about him, he was normally pretty visible and approachable, and that a lot of times made our job a lot easier the way he was willing to work with us. He,
1: he was a part of the community. I know you do a lot of high school sports you and Jake and Andrew here and his son Peyton was a big part of the A&M consolidated high school team. They A&M consolidated got a shout out during the Ohio State. Did uh, they really? Uh, no uh, way. Press conference talking about when they kind of was uh, given a little bio of his whole family. Um, and and he was out and about and talked to y'all during those things. Yeah. I mean, I mean, case
0: in point this season, I mean, it was Peyton's senior season. He was one of the Tigers top players. They're one of their best receivers are uh, all Brazos Valley football teams coming out this weekend. You might see his name on there. <laughs> just giving the shameless plug. Uh, and, and, you know, if A&M's got a road game and had a lot of 11 a.m. road games, Ross made it a point. He was at every single game for Peyton this year and in the world of college athletics, this day and age, an administrator that high up giving up every Friday night to be there for his son, tip of the cap to him. And I mean, that meant some early mornings to fly out to road games or late nights. And, uh, but Ross made it a point that, Hey, I'm still a family man. I want to be there. I want to be seen. I want to help. He even showed up to a school board meeting, uh, last year when, you know, there were a lot of athletes and parents that were expressing concerns with, um, you know, the facilities that Anam consolidated high school, he didn't speak, but he showed up. And, you know, I think that goes a long way when you have a guy that's willing to step outside the office and, and be there in a community.
1: And he was, and I think he made it a clear point that, and he did to you a lot of times that he wasn't ever, um, trying to uh, wield his weight in in that high school realm. He
0: was there as a parent. Mm -hmm. He was not there as athletic director Ross Bjork. He was there as Peyton's dad Mm -hmm. and you know from day 1, I think he made that pretty clear. I
1: think he even filled in as a uh, a 7 on 7 coach for he one did. of the uh He did. for one of the <laughs> events that they had because the the main coach uh uh was sick or had another obligation or something yeah. like that. So, uh, yeah, he was, you know, we we just submitted uh contests his contest season uh, in the writing world in the journalism world, we just submitted things and one of the stories was the the obituary I did about Terry Price and the interesting story about that is I kind of was in the loop on what was going on when that news kind of came out because Ross Bjork was at the state seven on seven tournament, watching his son. I was out there working it when rumbling started happening and I was kind of attached to his hip for the next couple of hours, trying to figure out what was going on there as he was both watching his son, but on the phone, making phone calls, talking to people. And so, yeah, you know, was a, a, a visible part of, of the community. So, um, uh, those are all, you know, I I don't think uh, when everybody looks back, there's going it was a immense era of change in the sport that he oversaw. Oh, yeah. And he put a and I, I don't think anybody out there would say that AM was not on the forefront or made a lot of news or made a lot of waves in the NIL front, in some of these new concepts in college football. And a lot of that is under his guidance. I think that's a a, a good mark on his time here at A&M. Um, would, did the whole football coaching situation, were there some head scratchers on that? Yeah, I think there were. I think there are um, things that probably could have been handled better. But I think overall – um, you know, one of the things he said in his press conference is that they wanted to make sure they left A&M better than they found it, that kind of coaching cliche. And I, I think ultimately all things considered, they probably did. I'm curious on your take on that kind of perspective.
0: Yeah, I would, I would say that for the most part, that's the case. I mean, you think about it, he, he made, when you look at an athletic department as a whole, AM definitely on the leading edge of the NIL front. I mean, Ross himself went down to Austin to testify in front of the entire legislature, and AM was very much involved in, in helping form that NIL bill. Uh, we talked about the coaching hires that he made. I mean, obviously, football is the one people see the most of. Um, but, you know, when you look at top to bottom, where's an athletic department? I mean, that comes down to where. Teams are in the director's cup, right? Mm-hmm. And so AM, they 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 didn't do so well the last few years, but with some of some of the coaching hires that Ross made, you see those programs are probably on an upward trajectory um, for whoever the next person to lead the athletic department is. So yeah, I think it's a fair assessment to say he probably left it better than he than he found
1: it. And a lot of those ways that they, it is better is in the front office necessarily more than the f- playing field because a lot of those programs were kind of getting uh, reset rebounded and, and what's are right director's cup could be another knock against him because they ultimately all falls uh, to the athletic director because um, they haven't had some great finishes there, but the front office is, is in a good spot uh, moving forward, which kind of also then, ask the question and yeah uh, I'll, I'll throw it out to you to ask of where, where do they go from here to fill that front office so Travis
0: who <laughs> my am seek to replace Ross and I think they
1: might have a decent candidate in their office already I, I think so too um, I, I think you can look around and we can start th- uh, with okay who's some people who know this area who know yeah well l- first let's set the framework of what a;m has
0: looked for recently, right? I mean, in the last few, whether it's, it's Bill Byrne, um, uh, gosh, Eric Hyman, uh, Scott Woodward. I mean, those have been sitting ADs from quote unquote power five schools, whether it was Nebraska, Washington, South Carolina. So, that's kind of been the mold that
1: A&M has gone with in the past, which I don't know if they're necessarily going to go with that this time. I, and I think things have to change. I think not. There, there's a little bit of a lagging indicator with how you look at football coaches. The the, the Nick Sabans, the um, Jimbo Fishers, the, I'm trying to think of some of the other coaches that have either kind of left and gotten out of the Gary Pattersons of the world we're on the top of their game at one point about 10 years ago. Um, But when NIL stepped in the transfer portal, the one-time transfer rule, it completely changed the game. Now coaches were having to recruit their own rosters. They're having to deal with basically what amounts to contracts for players and negotiating with players and whatnot. And there's a lot of coaches that said, this isn't what I signed up for. I'm or teams out. that have maybe
0: taken a step back like Clemson when they've been a little reluctant to, to really adapt
1: to the times. Correct. Uh, and I know some of those coaches are still probably trying to want to get a coaching job, but probably one of the biggest knocks on them is they didn't fully embrace this new reality. I, I think with athletic directors, you, you look at someone like Gene Smith, who's been in his post 19 years at Ohio State, probably one of the more prominent athletic directors in the country, like a, like a like a household name athletic director he's retiring this year. Um, Some of that has to do with the time, but I think there's probably some of it too that has to do with, there's a lot going on right now. And there's going to be a lot going on in the next three years about how this all shakes out and looks. And there's probably going to be a decent amount of athletic directors that say, yeah, I'm I'm tapping out. I'm I'm good um, with that. And so because of that, They probably do need to look a little different. The the, the search, the qualifications, the criteria is probably going to be a little bit different because I think that there are probably some ADs at some power five schools that are a little bit older, a little bit more established that that might have been the target in the past who I don't know if you want to go in that direction because it just depends on how well they have their finger on the pulse of where this is all going, how willing they are to, to be nimble, to be malleable, to, to change their approach, to make adjustments with everything that's going on. Uh, and that'll be interesting. I I think, I think just like what Ohio state did, I think more so than, great coaching hires and fundraising and things like that. I think an understanding of the world of NIL and an understanding of all that's going on in Congress, in the court systems and in the future of college athletics, that's where you're going to be. Because if you don't have an eye towards that here in three to five years, it's going to be rough for you to adapt to how college football is going to change because it is going to change in some ways and then you're going to be behind. Um, so I think that might be a little bit more of a focus moving forward. For sure. So tell me who A&M might go for. <laughs> so I have two, <laughs> two names that immediately come to mind. Um, who somewhat fit that? mold starting outside. Okay. The two ones that, that come to mind that would know this area have shown a decent amount of, of knowledge and, and in, in the NIL space and where college football is going is, uh, Kirby Holcut at Texas tech Okay, has served on the college football playoff committee, uh, they have a good NIL collective system working up there in Texas tech was able to do some really good things with their athletic programs in a place that's really hard to recruit and be at out in West Texas. I think that would be a good option. And then maybe Rick Hart at SMU. I mean, it negotiated and, and helped get SMU into what's, still right now a power five power four we're gonna have to make new names for things but get them into the acc uh and we're negotiating an interesting contract finding the the boosters to help uh pay for the athletic department while they're not taking in tv money it's it's i i think that there's some savvy there that could be um good but it's not necessarily the first phone call I'd make. I think the first phone call i make, and it's you don't really need to call, it's more like yelling down the hallway. That's a deputy uh, athletic director, Justin Moore, who's already here at AM, has been Ross's right-hand man. And for as much as Ross is the figurehead and he goes out and he gives the talks and he makes the fundraising pitches and makes the decisions, Justin Moore has been the day-to-day guy who's run the department. I think he's had five years of of experience under Ross to kind of see where, if if you want to say that Ross is one of the ADs on the leading edge of NIL and where this is all going, he's had a front row seat to pick the brain of and knows uh, there. So knows what's might be coming. And so he, Um, has that experience and he knows all of the big players already. He knows he was the football. He's been the football and men's basketball administrator the last two years. So kind of the step between Ross and, and the football coach, the football program has been that guy. I think he's the first call that you make because I think in the, with the way that this is going, he has the knowledge, he has the experience, and in a time where you're already turning over a new football program with new football coaches and everything, he was involved with those conversations. He's a guy that Mike Elko would have needed to form a trust with to take this job because he was the number two guy. I think you start there. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good place to start, and here's another reason why, okay? a made a lot of outside hires over the last 20 years for, th- for its athletic directors. You know, it's been a while since a had a homegrown Aggie. He's an Aggie, lead the right? department I mean, he played baseball at a and I mean, he, he was at U of H for a little bit uh, with Kevin Sumlin, came back home when Sumlin got hired. And he's been here the last, like, 10-plus years. I mean, I mean... He's really climbed the, la- the ranks, climbed the ladder. Been and- here for
1: four different athletic directors now?
0: Uh, yeah, I think yeah. that sounds right. And so, I mean, look, A&M is a place that has a very odd organizational structure outside of the athletic department when you have a bunch of different competing entities that are, you know, giving their voice, sharing their opinion, trying to help A&M get to where they want to go right? Mm-hmm. Having a guy that's been on the inside that, that gets it right. I mean, that could go a long way when you have a complicated situation like AM, where you have these different pieces and entities and groups that are, that are trying to, you know, share their influence and input on, on things and, and being able to unify that I think is what A&M wants to do. And having a guy that has those connections and relationships that can keep it going, I think could be a very good thing for AM considering they haven't reached the the part of the college football or college athletic world that they want to be in, but feel like they can be, uh, that that could go a long way in AM actually getting there for once.
1: Yeah, I I agree. Um I think that um, the other interesting thing to look forward to that kind of relates to him is so Gene Smith, the Ohio State AD, uh, AD, doesn't retire until June 30th. Ross Bjork doesn't start his job at Ohio State till July 1st of this year. And one of the things that they were touting at Ohio State is that this gives half a year for Ross Bjork to come under the wing of Gene Smith, learn the ropes up there, learn how things are, are run, get a little bit more experience with Ohio State, and the transition will be... Much smoother as he rides off into the sunset and Ross takes over. but that leaves the question of well, what is Ross's now job with a and m and how long does that go and I haven't I've been asking around there ha- isn't a clear answer yet of you know is he going up to Ohio State and uh, they they said he is still in the press conference. They didn't make mention that he is still currently employed with Texas A&M. Another statement he made is that he'll be up and around Ohio State events a little bit more starting March 1st. Um, so that's another interesting date that we don't really have a definition for. And the people I've asked don't really know how this is going to work, if there's going to be an interim, what's going on. So there, I think there's some of those... Um, yeah, some of those in- issues are still kind of getting resolved right now. But if you go back to when Scott Woodward left, they made R.C. Slocum interim athletic director until they brought in Ross Bjork. If Ross leaves, let's say, around March 1st, that's his last day at A&M, and goes up to be in a kind of an advisory role until he takes over the AD job, I think Justin Moore has got to be one of the first places you look to become that interim AD. So do you, then maybe you give him a couple of months to audition for the job, see how things are going and pull the interim tag. That's another, uh, way to go about this moving forward. That being said, I don't this isn't a coaching hire. I don't, it's not like you need to have someone in place, uh, you know, before the transfer portal opens to make sure that you secure your roster. I think this is going to be an important hire with how things are going in the next three years. And it's not one that I necessarily think they need to, uh, make quickly. So that was a lot on the AD. There is basketball going. You want you want to talk some basketball? Let's talk some basketball. I think there's plenty to talk about. Let's talk some basketball. We'll do that on the other side of the break, right here on the Miami Nation Podcast.
0: Welcome back to the Miami Nation Podcast, everyone. We're talking basketball.
1: Oh, don't sing. No one wants karaoke hour. Ah.
0: Oh. <laughs> Well, um, the Aggies look. Anum Anum's in a in an interesting spot on the hardwood right now. They're what ten and seven, one and three in SEC play. If you would have told me this time yesterday, Travis, that Wade Taylor was going to score forty one points and Anum was only going to have two turnovers at Arkansas, and you would have told me that they lost, I would have thought, what on earth happened? But you didn't mention that Henry Coleman wasn't playing. And, oh, I forgot a playing at Arkansas, where it just seems to be... Playing at Bud Walton Arena is just some of their kryptonite, man.
1: One one win in the last 35 years. That's unreal. Yeah, one, one win since the Southwest Conference. That's at, crazy. In Fayetteville.
0: Yeah, not an easy place to win. a uh, and wasn't able to do it last night. Look, I sense a lot of frustration among the a&m fan base travis can we try and separate some fact from some fiction and kind of set the record straight and just be honest of where a&m's really at and if the aggies can
1: kind of get it together and, and go on a run maybe sure i think i think the program I, I think that there is a lot of we talked about some recency bias with uh Ross Bjork, I think there's some re- recency bias in A&M fandom looking back at the shortcomings of the football team. It was a program by all accounts and reports that was unhealthy. You had um, a head coach that was more concerned with, according to reports, the, the stars and the amount of talent they brought in and their rankings over how cohesive the team was, how much it meshed, a coach that was so set in his ways – on offensive game planning, play calling, structure—that there wasn't the ability to adapt. And in fact, it was I'm uh, to what the roster was, and it's going to be my way is so good that I'm going to prove that it's so good, and it's just not working. You're you're not playing into the strengths of of your roster. There was just some decay in the program that way. I, I there's not that same amount of decay in the men's basketball program right now. I mean, first off, they, they played a, the, the top 13 non-conference schedule as it was ranked coming out and coming into conference play. They were the second highest ranked non-conference strength of schedule of a power five team. Only Purdue played a harder schedule Um, coming into conference play, when you look at the Kim Palm metrics and thing, they had the fifth best offense in the country. I know people are going to roll their eyes at that because it is kind of ugly to watch, but it was a productive, efficient offense. It was defense that they actually struggled with the most early on. Um, The program is fine. I know a lot of people want to talk about the way that Buzz Williams recruits, and I think the narrative out there is that Buzz Williams just recruits Eagle Scouts. You know, just just the best, gosh darn people that you could have out there, and if they can play some basketball, that's good too. That's not fully true. I think when Buzz talks about recruiting the guys that are their guys, I think that there are some character traits like that that they do look for. But I always have seen it more as guys that can, um, uh, who are good listeners, who can learn quickly on the fly who are intelligent, um, who can take coaching Um, there. And that is after they've achieved the standard of, this is a guy who's good enough to play in the sec. Uh, And so I think the, the narrative that A&M is only going to hit a ceiling because of the players that recruit, they recruit. Okay. Sure, they might not go for the five-star guy who's dumber than a box of rocks, but there's been so many instances when you look at the football team of guys who are these big five-star talents who everyone was excited for, but then you hear rumors and conversation of, well, they just couldn't learn the playbook. They never saw the field because they, they, they didn't know their routes. They couldn't learn the playbook. They didn't adapt well to college coaching or whatever. I think what Buzz is trying to do is circumvent some of that by saying, these are guys who are all going to know the playbook. They're all going to listen. They're all going to be able to take coaching. Uh, and they're still really good athletes. I, I think if you look back at who Tyrese Radford was, who Wade Taylor was shooters last year, Tyrese Radford increased his three-point shooting percentage by like 20 points from his time at Virginia Tech to A&M. I don't have those stats. I, w- I meant to pull those stats up here. But he, he became a really good three-point shooter last year. Wade Taylor was a pretty decent three-point shooter last year. so So it's in there. They have it. They were able to do that at this level before. It's just, for some reason, it looks like they have the yips this year. They just cannot hit a three. Um, They were one of the most efficient free-throw shooting teams in the country. Wade Taylor and Tyrese Radford Radford were battling back and forth for who was the best most efficient free throw shooter last year. Free throws have been a little, I wouldn't say it's an issue, but they've been worse this year. They have not been as good. So that showed last say, night. It's hard to say that this team is is not full of good talent because they've proven at this level that they are good talent. In the past, they just aren't doing it this year. And they've had to deal with a lot more injuries this year than they have in the past. Now, do I think you're going to win a whole lot of games if you're shooting below 30% from the field and below 10% from the from the uh, or 20% from the three point? No, you're probably not. But the offense, the way it's run, circumvents provides mitigations for not shooting the ball well. That is getting offense rebounds, getting easy layups, putting those back, getting to the free throw line, making those free throws it's a good strategy it's just and it's a good strategy for a team that isn't going to be one of the top shooting teams in the conference it's just there's not a whole lot of strategies that can mitigate shooting again below 30 percent from the field and below 20 percent from behind three point range they're gonna have to hit some more shots but and and we can break we can delve into that a little bit yeah, further here so that's just kind of the overall picture so We know you're not the
0: real doctor in the Brown household, but (laughs) we're going to pretend that you're Dr. Brown and we're going to diagnose a few of these specific things that I think people have started to catch on to as trends. Number one, let's talk about Wade Taylor. Okay. SEC preseason player of the year. He scores 41 against Arkansas, but he shoots like 13 of 32. It's not very efficient at times. How much, how much does AM go by how well Wade is playing, see how they did versus Arkans or Auburn last week versus how they did against Kentucky on Saturday in as kind of a comparison per se and how Wade how Wade's playing on offense? I
1: think if they're gonna try to play out the rest of the season forcing Wade to play hero ball and, and try to pull off what he nearly pulled off against uh, Houston and nearly pulled off last night against uh, Arkansas, I, I I don't think they're going to go as far. I think Wade Taylor is a great talent. I think even if he takes a, a huge volume of shots, if you're scoring 41 points in the SEC, you're, you're a good talent. Like, you're, you're doing something well. Um, but they need more secondary scoring. I think that comes from getting Henry Coleman back in the lineup because – Part of the reason why Wade Taylor can volume shoot is the fact that if he shoots a three and Henry Coleman and Anderson Garcia are both in good rebounding position, there's a really good chance that even if he misses that three-pointer, it becomes basically a post-entry pass. They get the rebound. They go up and make the layup or get fouled and hit the two free throws, and uh, that's how they get points. It, It works well that way. But if you're not making free throws, if you don't have Henry Coleman down there who is a more efficient... Uh, uh, second chance guy than Anderson Garcia or Solomon Washington is down low, then you're you're gonna have to get uh, Tyrese Radford the ball a little bit more. You're gonna have to get Jace Carter going a little bit. I think part of the reason they're not going getting going is that Wade Taylor, and I don't know if this is if, if this is play calling, this is on the coaches or if this is Wade Taylor kind of reading what he sees. He's playing a little too much ISO game. He's playing a little too much. It's all on me. I'm going to go down and throw up a crazy uh, one-handed floater while falling away to the right side of the basket, and it's not going to go in, and our guys really aren't in position when I make that crazy play, so we're not going to get the offensive rebound. Buzz Williams talks a lot about predictability. It's not really a predictable shot. That's not going to do them any good. There was one instance where where Wade drove. It was kind of late in the game. uh, Wade drove down in the paint, tried one of those one-handed bumping into the guy, floater, layup type things just outside of the paint, when Tyrese Radford had cut along the baseline and was wide open in the corner. That's a great instance to dribble, penetrate, kick it out to Radford. He has a wide open three chance. They're not hitting the three great, but he's probably their second best three-point shooter. Or everybody's collapsed in on Wade he takes the ball drives in and has a little bit easier of a chance at a layup than Wade did because everybody had already collapsed on Wade having a little bit more vision it's kind of shades a little bit of freshman year Wade when it was a little bit out of control uh he kind of had blinders on and was going one way to do the one thing now he's an improved player so he's going to make a lot more of those shots but I think he's trying to carried too much of the weight of the world on his shoulders when there is options. They, they changed their pick and roll game. They did this a little bit about Arkansas. It's where they're running the pick and roll more on the wing than in the high. And that works well against Kentucky. And you're getting some more guys involved and some more chances to dish off to Andy or if Henry can get back in, dish off to Henry. Um, so the, the issues that they have aren't huge. I think they need to get Wade to, to be a little bit more of a playmaker and not necessarily having to score forty-one points in a game. Uh, Twenty-five and five assists will go a long way. Sure, sure, <laughs> and, and get some of these guys going. Um, they they do need that one more guy because Hayden Hefner has fallen off. He's been really bad the last couple. He of was games. not good last. Jace night. Carter's scoring hasn't really been there. The last, if they they need one of those two guys to step up, or Manny Obasici, uh to to step up and and be a little bit. They, they need one more guy. Because because basically when you do have Anderson Garcia on the floor, you know he's on there for his rebounding a little bit, his defense, not necessarily his offense. So you need one more guy that can produce points. But I, I still think this is a good team. They just have had to deal with injuries, n- which makes it non uh, non consistent guys in, in different roles, uh, and they just haven't shot the ball well. And if they can get out of that slump and shoot, not they don't need to be a three uh, th- over you know thirty five percent from the field uh you know or mid-range game or whatever they they just need to be um a little bit more consistent on their shooting and the second chance points and the free throws will mitigate for that the other
0: on the other side looking kind of at, at the big men's situation just how valuable is henry coleman because i think at this point of the season it's clear julius marvel is not playing they definitely thought he was going to be a key piece of the team coming into the year Wildens Levesque has has put together some good minutes he's just it doesn't seem at the level that that Henry Coleman or they anticipated Marble to be I mean give him credit the guy has has fought he had a pretty good game against Kentucky and you think about Coleman and Levesque are more of that traditional big man kind of like the the Shaq kind of player you think of Garcia and Solomon Washington kind of strike me as this new age big man where these dudes are really tall, freakishly athletic, but they don't quite have the size and the body to, to necessarily get down, get down and dirty sometimes. Well, I shouldn't say that necessarily about Andy cause he's, he's pretty, yeah. he's pretty gritty down there.
1: Yeah. But how much, and you know, this could be a debatable topic, but how much in the modern college basketball game do you see? Guy's getting the ball down low. The guy is backing the guy up with two dribbles and then turns it with the hook shot or or uh, you know powers through him into the basket. It's just not part of the game. In fact, most of the time with these teams, when they get their, their tallest, their post players, they work more as a pivot. They bring them up to outside the three-point line when the play starts, uh, and they're setting up what their screens are going to be. Uh, he holds on the ball to clear the big guys out of the lane so that their guards do have the ability to drive or when they do run the pick and roll, there's less congestion in the paint and they have some ability to run that pick and roll down in the paint. a and does that a lot. Look at where Anderson Garcia is at the beginning of most plays or Henry Coleman. They're that pivot. They're the guy who's at the top of the key who's going to hold on to the ball after the point guard gets up, while well, the play develops, and then get it off and then set their screen to pick and roll and 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 work through it. So you people don't play triangle offense anymore. Um, you don't see two posts on each block and post entry passes and guys, you don't really see that a whole lot anymore in the game. And so you don't need that kind of guy. But instead, on his radio show, he's talked to us and like, he is never going to be a guy who brings in a seven, two center who takes 15 seconds to get down the court because he's so big and slow. Uh, he said, why would I get, I think one of his quotes on the radio show is why would I get that guy when I can get a Henry Coleman who is a little bit shorter, just as broad and he can run circles around that guy. Um, and I, think that that's kind of where the modern game is trending and they've shown that they can they're they're not a tall team but they're their number one offensive rebounding team in the country they're a good rebounding team uh you don't necessarily have to have those guys you just have to be able to hit a few more shots to find that open man to have one guy who gets a little bit hot uh especially on the road uh to make it so you're As long as Buzz is here, you're never going to have a seven-two center who is. You're never going to have a maybe. I mean, you might have an Oscar She way. He's a generational talent. But they did not, have Josh Nebo. Well, and Josh Nebo, the the reason they actually ran that kind of game with Josh Nebo, I know, where it was get it down low, get you. But that's because they realized he's all that they had. <laughs> that was the only way they're going to win games because they inherited that roster and. And that was just gonna. They, they kind of altered. They were adaptable. They altered their game and did it that way. But that's not the way that most teams play. The A.M. offense looks a
0: lot different. They were trying to beat you fifty to forty nine. Then right
1: now they're trying to. And you want to talk about <laughs> some of that adaptability? They've played their offense different ways. When you look back two years ago, and Quentin Johnson was or Quentin Jackson was here, they still weren't a great shooting team. They let their defense dictate their offense by using that three quarters court press a lot quentin jackson was quick enough and a good uh good with his hands enough that they relied so much on steals in transition buckets and that's how they were successful then now that they've got in better shooters than they had then they've worked a little bit more onto the pick and roll game off of wade and getting the offensive rebounds cause they have Henry, they have uh, Anderson Garcia and it's adapting to what the roster is that they have. They know they have good rebounders, so they're going to use those good rebounders. It seems
0: like Solomon Washington is on the verge of becoming a, a dependable guy, but he, he's not quite there yet. He's, he's kind of a, I'm going to say like a five, five, five guy, a five points, five rebounds, but five fouls kind of guy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He, he, his best asset is also his his biggest flaw and that is his energy and his passion and his the ability to be a right he is he is a he has all the energy because he wants to be that defensive guy and if you're a good defensive player you've got the energy you've got the the tenacity and and all that comes with but he also sometimes gets too aggressive for every time he, I, I don't think there's two blocks in that Kentucky game that I don't think I've seen before. There was the one that got, you know, posted around social media a lot, where the uh, Kentucky guard was going up with the left hand and then did the up and under to go to the right hand to use the rim, and he was already mid air, going to block the left, and managed still to get his right and get a clean block on it and follow him across the rim. Like it was, it was unbelievable. The other one was. Uh, they got into rotation the Aggie defense did and Kentucky had a wide open shot about the free throw line or might have been top of the key and he went from the corner all the way and he looked like a football defensive end that's on uh, uh, kick block coming around the outside of the and diving in to try he did a full two-hand Superman dive was able to get his hand on the ball and block it and then hit his face on the floor I've never seen those two kinds of blocks but with that sometimes you're going to have him flying in like that and he makes contact with uh, the shooter and, and gets a foul. And so if he can find that happy medium where he still has that energy and tenacity but isn't flying into guys, isn't... Um, he plays more in control of himself. Right, right. And so I, I think he's going to... And then if he can develop... You know, he had a great drive-to-the-lane and one shot, like every now and then, he had, he's hit a couple three pointers lately. He hit one last night, like in there, the corner. There is a little bit of something there that I think he's going to be a really good player, um, and he could be that that scorer within a year. He's just not quite there yet. He is, however, Anum's best defender, and would have been on uh, a mark on that last shot had he not fouled out earlier in that game. Yeah.
0: Sorry, I'm getting a call anyway. Yeah. So, you know, kind of looking at where A&M is headed. Obviously one and three is probably not the start that they saw, but am has got some winnable games the next two weeks. Look, they're going to Baton Rouge. We talk about Fayetteville being a hard place to play. Baton Rouge has been a tough place for them too. And they're playing the LSU team that beat them by 15 at home. A&M still probably has a chance to win this game. They come back and they play what Missouri next week in the midweek, and then they get Ole Miss at home. That'll be a tough game. Missouri, they're they're struggling pretty hard. You know, if a And M kids string together, you know, three wins here, I think I think at four and three, hit, hitting kind of the middle stretch of conference play, you're starting to feel better about where a And M's headed with some tough games down the stretch.
1: You thought this Arkansas game was going to be where they started a a good little win streak. If you looked at Ken Palm, they predicted that it was going to be a six game win streak. They were going to win it with Arkansas at LSU, um, Missouri home, Ole Miss home, Florida home—that's a really winnable stretch. It still is a really winnable stretch, especially if they can get Henry Coleman back, which by the broadcast and what seems like he might be able to be back for uh, that that LSU game. This is a really winnable stretch. This is a time where they they need to and can get a lot of momentum heading into Tennessee and Alabama. Uh, late in in the season, so this is going to be the the meat of where they're going to get a lot of their wins this season, and they need to be able to do that. But the difference in where they have been in years past and and where they are now is the fact that they have three quad one wins, and as we know in college basketball, that is a big factor into that's the money stat. That is, that is a really big part of the money stat. They also have now a quad two and potentially a quad three loss in, uh, LSU, but they still made the tournament last year with a quad four loss, to right before Christmas break and a much worse strength of schedule. I, I I think that this is still a tournament team. If you look at Joe Lenardi, if you look at Bart Torvik, they still have them in the nine seed range right now, and they're going to have opportunities for more quad one wins as it comes uh, down the stretch. I still think as they sit right now, this is a tournament, tournament team, 41 in the net. Once you start getting into the late 40s, 50s, that's when you start getting a little bit in in the bubble area, um, but they've got to find that consistency that they had early in the season, where you had Henry Coleman averaging a double d- double double a game, you had Wade Taylor, uh, you know, getting in the low twenties, and Tyrese Radford getting in the fifteen to twenty point scoring averaging in there. If they can get back to that while maintaining being the number one rebound offensive rebounding team and the number one second chance point team in the country, they're going to be fine. And in my opinion, and their defense is better. Their defense has improved since the Auburn game. They've been flying around the defense in the second half of that of that Arkansas game was really good. Defense was what really kind of plagued them early in the season. If they can play that defense while getting back to the same consistency early they're going to be a pretty good team and they're going to hit all of the metrics that prove to be good tournament teams. They just have to do it a little bit more consistently. Well, Travis, I think that's going to do
0: it for this episode of the Miami nation podcast. What say you, my friend? I think so too. My, my, my voice is tired. All right, well, we're going to go back into the bitter cold of the newsroom. <laughs> you guys stay warm wherever you are. Be sure to check TheEagle.com for all of our coverage on AM Athletics. We'll be back soon on the Magi Nation podcast. It seems like every day Everything just has a way No way must have scenes. But if we don't watch what we're doing Our hearts will get ruined by silly things Good love ain't a girl, we know that's true and if we want to keep it We gotta watch everything that we do, yeah do want to make sure, my baby Make sure you're sticking with me I want to make sure that we'll be All that we can be, all that we can be